are so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Welcome back to our study through the book of Luke. We are going to be on Luke chapter 4 today. And this is going to be one of those that is is probably going to be a very challenging one um, to to hear some of these things. And and what I mean by that is, is that it's going to challenge you. It's going to get you to take a a long, hard look at yourself. And and ones like that are oftentimes not the most popular teachings. And um, this one is probably going to enlighten you on some things, challenge you, exhort you. And, uh, but ideally it's going to convict you. And we have one of two options whenever conviction hits. We either run from it or we um, allow it entrance into our soul to accomplish in us what God wants it to accomplish. And that's why, like in James 1, 2 through 4... When he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when we meet trials of various kinds, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its complete work in you, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's the convictions and the challenges of life, those things that that come in, we have opportunity of what we're going to do with them. And we either run from them, or we allow it entrance into our life to accomplish in it what. God wants to accomplish in order that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so in that one, this one's probably going to be a similar one in Luke chapter 4. And so I want you to, to read through this with me. Um, if you can, if you're driving, then obviously, you know, don't read through it with me. But if you are maybe sitting on your back porch and you just have your Bible with you, maybe you don't have your Bible, go get it. Get your cup of coffee. Get your Bible. And, and read along with this um, with me. So in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Now, if you analyze the one in Matthew, it says that he was led by the Spirit to be tempted. Now, that's an interesting statement because a lot of times people don't think that God will ever lead them into temptation. But that's not what the Word says. The Word will actually, actually says that God will allow you to be tempted. But he just won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear in Christ. But he will always provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure. But whether you endure or not is up to you. But he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear in Christ. And here, if you compare it with the Matthew translation, we see very point blank that the Spirit led Jesus for the sole purpose of being tempted. But Jesus being full of the Holy Spirit was able to withstand it. And we're going to see how he did that and what these temptations of how they apply to us even today. And let me just say this real quick. I've heard teachings before that Jesus, being the Son of God, was full of the Holy Spirit, that he had an advantage over us in which we can't do what he did. We can't be full of the Spirit like he was. 
And that's, that's an impossibility. And so Jesus had an advantage over us. And we can't do what Jesus did because he was a man full of the Holy Spirit who was full of grace. And we just weren't, we were not able to compete with that. He had an advantage over us. Let alone Hebrews chapter 2 and 4 saying that he was made like us in every respect, that he had no advantage over us in any way, that he was made like us in every respect. So don't even think for a second that because um, he was Jesus that we can't do what he does or what he did because the word actually says otherwise. But listen to this. It says this in um, Acts chapter 6. Okay, when they're trying to find some, some deacons, basically, right? The, the people gave a list to the apostles. And they said, here's a list of people that we're suggesting, we're recommending, but the apostles ultimately chose and said, who's going to serve? The people didn't get to choose who served. That's one thing that I think is wrong with the church today. The people or the congregation, they don't decide who gets to govern them. That's a democracy. The Christian life is not a democracy. Elders appoint elders, elders appoint deacons. It doesn't work any other way. You can suggest somebody, but it is to the discretion of the elders that appoint the elders, or the leadership, I should say. And here's one of their qualifiers in verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they, meaning the apostles, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. In verse 8, he says, and Stephen, full of grace and power. Now, let me just ask you this. If Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, and Stephen was full of grace and power and the Holy Spirit and wisdom, full, it doesn't say he was partially full, the, the text, the word of God, says that he was full. Wouldn't you then um, extrapolate from that, that Stephen just being simply... A man had the same ability that Jesus did. If the Spirit is what empowers us, and Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, and Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit, why would we think that even Stephen not being an apostle, why would we think that we don't have the access to be full of the Holy Spirit? Are you following what I'm saying? Because I've heard of the teaching before that Jesus, he was the only one that was really able to be full of the Holy Spirit. We're just sinful men. We can't ever do that. Well, Stephen... He throws a wrench into that theory because it's all it is. It's a theory. It's not founded on truth. We can do what Jesus did because he is in us and we are in him and the same spirit that dwelt in him dwells in us. Even though we are mere men, we have been infused with the blood of heaven and with the spirit of God Almighty. So don't ever think that Jesus had an advantage over you or I So that when we sin, or when we stumble, or when we struggle, we think, well, Jesus didn't do it because, well, he was Jesus. I'm sorry, that's not founded on the text. That's human reasoning and circular reasoning to try to come to a point to justify why you don't look like him yet. I said this was going to be a challenging one. He goes on and he says, and he ate nothing during those days. So Jesus, for those 40 days, had nothing to eat. Much like Moses on Mount Sinai when he went up to go get the Ten Commandments. He ate nothing during those 40 days. He goes on, he says, And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Now, here's what's interesting. I want you to understand that Satan waited until an opportune time 
He waited until an opportune time to wait for Jesus to be weakened, to wait for Jesus to be run down, to wait for Jesus to be vulnerable. Same way as a lion that preys upon wildebeest or, or water buffalo or whatever it might be that they're going after. They're going to pray and they're going to wait for an opportune moment when they can strike and they're going to identify which ones are the weak ones, which ones when they're weakened, I should say. Whether they're sick, whether they're weakened, whether they're lame, doesn't matter what it is. They identify that and they go after it. And nature tells us exactly how Satan also is going to try to do it. He oftentimes will wait until an opportune time when we are weakened. And here's Jesus, weakened in his body, but his spirit was strong because he was full of the Holy Spirit, even though his body was weak. Satan decided this was the time and he was going to strike. And here's how he struck. He says, if you are the son of God, which Satan was there in the beginning, he would have known Jesus. He would have known Jesus as the son of God. He would have sensed the spirit. He would have known. He says, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. You see, Jesus understood I wasn't going to put God to the test. I wasn't going to tempt him to to see or test him to see as if I knew what was better for me than what he does. I I see this played out in many ways. One of them is with children. A lot of people are going to say, no, 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 no. I only want two because I know what's best for me. I know what I need. I know what I want. I'm only going to have two. I'm only going to have three. And then I'm done because that's what's best for me. How dare you put God to the test to say that you know better than him of what he says is best for you. You're essentially turning stones into bread. To take what you want and what you think you need and not trust the provision of God to say, if you've sustained me this far, you'll sustain me with one more kid. Trust me, I've had to say that many times. As being a father of 10 kids, all of them, yes, are my own. And yes, I know what causes it. But both my wife and I do, actually. We know what causes it. And when we've had to go to 5, 6, 7, and even to 10, there's been many times that we've had to go to God and say, God, here's an opportunity for us to take these stones and turn them into bread and take what we want from it. This is all that we can handle. I can't handle day 41. I can't handle kid number eight. Oh, we've had to go and we've had to give that to him and say, God, if you want this stone to stay a stone, then so be it. I'm not going to test you to say as if you don't know better for me what I need than what I know myself. Behold, my body belongs to you. Because isn't that our spiritual act of worship anyways, as Romans 12, 1 says? So this is a concept about putting God to the test of thinking that you know better what you need than what he does. And that plays out in many ways. That's just the first one that came to my mind. It says, The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory. Everything that the world has to offer because I'm the God of this world and it's been given to me. He's not lying to Jesus. All the stuff of this world has been given to him as ownership. God has given it to him. It says, I'm the God of heaven. You're the God of this world. That's what 1 John 5 says. That the devil is the God of this world. And God says, look, how you want to try to tempt people, how you want to try to lure them, you can use everything that the world has to try to do so. It's yours. And Satan comes to Jesus. He says, if you're the son of God, Jesus... 
All this stuff is mine. I'll give you power. I'll give you reputation among men. I'll give you, you could be a king here on this earth. And I'll give you everything that this glory has if you would just bow down and worship to me. Let me just tell you, there are many Christians out there who are bowing their knee to Satan and they don't even realize it because their God is, is this world. Their possessions, their treasures, their families, even, even families, guys. Paul says that your desire to please your wife is a worldly thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, I'm not saying everything in the world is bad. I'm not saying that it's, it's all inherently bad and evil just because it's in this world. But what I will tell you is that 1 John, 5, or 1 John 2, 15-17 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. For the one who loves the world, the lust of the eyes, the pride of possessions, and the, the pride of life, it says the love of the Father is not in you. So I'm going to tell you, Satan is luring Christians with things of this world. And, and sadly, somehow we've even justified it in the church to say that it's okay. Let me just tell you, Satan gives these things to those who are going to bow their knee to him. If you think that bowing your knee to God is going to get you the things of this world, you're mistaken. Bowing your knee to God will get you the things of heaven. And he goes on, if, if you then worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. He says, my task in this life, I'm on a mission to glorify God and to serve him with all the ability and the strength that he gives to me. And to my dying death or till my dying breath is taken, my last breath, I will worship and serve him alone. It goes back to what we're talking about, Romans 12, 1, where he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, for this is your spiritual act of worship. Can you really say that you're worshiping God when you withhold your body to him? Not according to scripture. You can go raise your hands and sing to the top of your lungs on a Sunday morning, but God knows your heart. And if you're withholding anything from him, then do not say that you are worshiping him. Jesus says it, him alone shall you worship, shall you serve. It is him alone. You cannot serve the God of this world and the God of heaven. It is impossible to do so. Matthew 6, as we'll get to it later, um, probably at some point or another, it says you can only have one master. You cannot serve two. You either hate the one, love the other, be devoted to the one, and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And essentially broken down, mammon is things of this world. He says you cannot serve the God of heaven and you cannot serve the God of this world. So if you make your job or your family or your riches or your possessions or your money, whatever, you make that equal to or of a greater priority than God and the mission that we have to live this life for his glory through the, through the means of Jesus Christ. And obeying him, doing what he tells us to do, being who he tells us to be. If you're doing that, then you're trying to play two sides. You're two-spirited or double-minded, as the word says. And you're trying to have two masters, and it does not work that way. It's one or the other. And Satan was trying to get Jesus to flip sides. And Jesus didn't budge. He responded with scripture. Notice that in these next two, the one I just read in this next one, he's going to state scripture. I'm sorry, Satan didn't say it in this one. Satan says in the next one, he tries to use scripture to deceive Jesus. And Jesus knows his game and he used scripture to prove the inv invalidity of what he stated. 
And is it any different than how he did in the beginning with Adam? Notice in the beginning, Adam and Eve were able to have some good time, right? Jesus is now at the age of 30. He's lived his life. I don't know how old Adam was when Satan came to him, but I do know that he lived in the garden for a time, that he had enough time to be with the animals, enough time to be with Eve, and then Satan struck at an opportune time. And here's Jesus, the age of 30. He's now been baptized, received the Holy Spirit, and he's gone out in his ministry, And now for the opportune time, Satan comes to him and he begins to tempt him with essentially this. Did God really say? Can you really trust his word? Can you really trust him? And every time Jesus responds back in faith, yes. And here's why. Because the word of God says that I can. Here's what he goes on to say. He took him to Jerusalem and set him up on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For here or from there. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. He quoted Psalm 91 to them. And what Satan didn't do, as he often does, is that he didn't include the context of Scripture. He decontextualized the Scripture to suit a purpose and a point that he wanted to suit for himself. And that verse was in Psalm 91.1. When he says... um, Let me turn to it actually real quick. He says in this passage, in Psalm 91.1, sorry I didn't have this already there, I should have been flipping to it while I was talking on the previous one, but it didn't hit me until now to turn to it. He says, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Essentially what he was trying to get Jesus to do is step outside the shelter of the Almighty through disobedience and putting God to the test. Because he knew That if he was in that position, he had the protection of God Almighty. But if he stepped outside of that and he put God to the test and he said, I'm going to do what I think is best. He says, and all of a sudden you're outside the protection, the shadow of the Almighty's wings, the secret place of the Lord. So he tried to test him with scripture by decontextualizing that scripture in order to serve his own purpose. And here's what Jesus said. It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The same thing is actually stated to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when Paul writes, we must not put Christ to the test. Don't think that you can test him with your salvation and think that you can do your own thing and that God's still going to forgive you in the end. This concept of once saved, always saved that, that promotes this ideology that says that nothing that you do will ever take away anything that God's given to you. Nothing that you do, whether good or bad, will ever change anything in your standing with Him. Once you prayed that prayer of salvation, you will always be sealed to the end. I'm sorry, that's not true. Why would Paul say, we must not put Christ to the test? In the same way that he's saying here, you cannot throw yourself down, you cannot take it easy, you cannot lighten up, you cannot decide that you want to just take a seat on this narrow road. You can't say that you want to look over to that broad road and start walking towards that. Don't put him to the test. He yearns jealously of the spirit that he has made to dwell in you, as James 4 says. So this concept, Jesus is responding to the temptations of Satan with the word of God. So let me just ask you, do you know the word of God as a sword so that you can respond to him when he comes to test you or to tempt you? Because the reality is, This isn't just a testing for Jesus as the Son of God. 
Romans 8 says that we are all children of God. We are all sons of God through Christ. That we have received the spirit of adoption as sons. So Satan is saying the same thing to you and I. If you are a son of God, go ahead and do these three things. Do you know scripture so as to respond back to him and wield that sword in battle? Because if you don't know the word, how are you going to discern good from evil? Because that's exactly what Hebrews 5 says. The author of Hebrews, he says that um, you should all be teachers by now. But I, instead, I need to teach you again the basic principles of the, of the word of God, the oracles of God. He said, because it's only through constant practice and maturity, a feeding on the meat of the word, that you have your powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So let me tell you, if you don't know the word of God, how do you know that you're not following a course of actually worshiping Satan? Of following his lead and being lured into all these things? How how do you know if you're not? If you don't know the word of God, then there's a really good chance that you're being led astray. As I, think, I think it's in 2 Corinthians 11 where Paul says that I fear that the tempter might have tempted you and might have lured you away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. It is possible. And if you don't know the word of God and you don't know how to fight back and you don't know how to wield that sword and say, Satan, I'm seeing through your temptations. I'm seeing through these things you're trying to do because here's what the word of God says. Then how do you know that you're distinguishing good from evil? In 2 Corinthians 11, towards the end of it, he says this, that Satan will disguise himself as an angel of light and so much his servants will disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And how do you know you're not being led astray? By Satan disguised as an angel of light or his servants disguised as servants of righteousness. The teachers that you're listening to, all the, all the various formats of how you are allowing people to speak into your life through the word of God. How do you know you're not being led astray if you yourself don't know the word? Because in every one of these, Jesus responded back with the word. And it's the only way that you're going to be able to slay the enemy and, and keep him at bay. It's how you resist him firm in your faith. That faith must be not on your feeling, it must be on the validity of the word of God. It's the only thing that can strike him and damage him. Everything else that we have in the armory is defensive weapons. It's to help prevent those things from engulfing us. But the sword, the sword is your offensive weapon. That's how you're going to damage him and not just let him damage you. So it says, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time and this is going to be one of that those themes throughout this you're going to see that he is waiting for an opportune time to strike you he's waiting for an opportune time to strike me he waits until we get weakened he waits until we become um, tired or exhausted or we lose our focus or whatever it might be till any little chink in our armor or any little hole in our wall he waits until he sees it and he's constantly scaling that wall He's not looking at the gate. He's not stupid. He's not going to come through and just be like, well, I'll wait until they open this gate for me and then I'll come in. And he's waiting until some of that stuff starts to deteriorate. And you should not have it deteriorate. You are in Christ and you should have every reason for that wall to be fortified strong. But sometimes you take your eyes off of him. Sometimes you start living in disobedience. Sometimes you stop praying or you stop reading. All of a sudden there's some, some damage that happens to that wall. And Satan's just watching. 
He's waiting for that little crack to open up in there so that he can do what he wants to do. And he'll slowly bring those things in. And so, our job is to not let them. Through the grace that God will apply to our lives and reckon to our account as we humbly come before him and in faith choose to reckon that grace to our account, we need to fortify that wall and be strong. It says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Notice in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, people actually kind of liked him a little bit. But at the end of his ministry, there's only 120 people that were followers of him. We know that because that's what Acts tells us in the end of, I think it's the end of Matthew tells us. Maybe I, maybe it's 1 Corinthians. He appeared to over 500, but it doesn't necessarily say that they were all devoted followers of him. He just appeared to 500 at one time. What we do know is that at the time of his death and his glorification, that there was 120 followers. I think it's Acts 1 that tells us that. Out of the millions of people that he ministered to in three years, most people at the end of his life hated him. Few loved him. I want you to think about that. Most people hated Jesus. And you might think, well, that was Jesus. We live in a different culture now. John 15 says that if they hated me, they'll hate you. That if you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But I called you out of the world. I called you to live set apart. I called you to be as I am. Therefore, the world will hate you. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It will come upon you. If you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, the world will come after you. They will hate you. But there will be some who love you. Who love you as their own. And those are the ones you need to hold on to. And surround yourself with. Because bad company corrupts good morals. Surround yourself with people who feed your soul in the right way. Not just flatter you. Not just encourage you even. But people who tell you the hard truths. People who are there for you. Who are going to say, you know what? We need to get on that horse. And we need to live like Christ. We are on mission. I don't care what it costs. And they're going to remind you of the hard things. Keep those people in your life. Watch out for the people who flatter. And he goes on and he says, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Excuse me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now what's interesting is that Jesus is saying this about himself. And he fulfilled it all. And not just did he fulfill it in the physical sense. Because he did that. He gave sight to the blind. He, he um, you know, preached good news to the poor. He did some of these things, but primarily, this was a spiritual fulfillment of those who were blind, he allowed to see. Those who were in captivity to their flesh and to Satan, he gave liberty to them. Those who were oppressed, 
he's set free. You see, it's part of the reason why the Pharisees and the Jews in general didn't accept Jesus is because they thought he was coming to give them deliverance from a physical tyranny of Rome and establish their physical kingdom. And that's not why Jesus came. They missed it. Because Jesus wasn't coming for the physical things. He was coming for the spiritual. He was coming to put heaven in us and us in heaven. He was coming to establish a heavenly kingdom. He was coming to establish a heavenly temple. A spiritual priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices. He was coming to establish a heavenly Jerusalem. Not a physical one. And that's why they missed it. And I'm going to say you'll miss it too. If you think that all he did was come to be physically... um, to be a physical minister to people's needs. And you're going to miss it if you think that that's what Christianity is. Humanitarianism. If you think it's just serving the needs of people. Then you're missing the boat of what it really is. It says he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What a, what a boast, boastful claim that is. It says, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, I want you to pay very close attention to this. Because Jesus understood when all men praised him, something was wrong with his message. They were missing something of what he was trying to state. Because all men, it says that they, they were praising him. They thought, This man speaks... Um, he spoke well and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. But we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in our hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, meaning none of the Jews, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who's a widow, a Gentile. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian, a Gentile. Now, why would he say these two things? Because I'm going to tell you, these were two hot points in, the, in, in Israel's history. Two points in which they questioned God. Two points in which they said God wasn't just. Two points in which they said, despite our obedience, God should have kept uh, taking care of us, not the Gentiles. How dare he go to the Gentiles when we're his people? He left us here to starve. He left us here with leprosy. And he took care of Naaman? He took care of this, the, um, the widow in the land of Sidon. He took care of Gentiles. How dare God do that? You know what he did? He poked and he prodded at their pride. Because he knew it was there. They spoke gracious words to him, but he knew that it was flattery. And so he poked and he prodded at their pride to see what stirred up. And look at what their response was. When they heard these things... All in the synagogue were filled with wrath. You see, this is why I say that you have one of two ways of responding to conviction. Either accepted in humility or you reject it in pride. And this is an example of what happens when people reject truth in pride. Like Paul says in Galatians, I think it's in chapter 2, he says, or 4, where he says, Have I become your enemies by telling you the truth? If somebody's got pride, 
they will not receive truth. They will reject it unless they lay that pride down and humble themselves. That's the only way they can receive it. And here we see Jesus is simply speaking truth, but he's poking at their pride to see what shakes from that tree. And for them it was wrath. It says they rose up and they drove him. Listen to this, guys. They drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down off the cliff. They wanted to kill Jesus because of the words that he spoke. And when was the last time anybody ever wanted to kill you because of what you spoke in truth? They were too busy trying to be kind to people and trying to be nice and trying to let our words be seasoned with salt and always gracious to the hearers, right? And I'm not saying that being kind is wrong. I'm not saying that being gracious, I think that's a a good thing. However, when it comes at the expense of being truthful and telling people what they need to hear as opposed to just what they want to hear, I think we've ventured into sin and being cowards. Jesus was no coward. He knew that when he had the applause of man, something was wrong. And so he decided to poke at their pride and see what shook from that tree. And I think his suspicion was right. They wanted to take him up and they wanted to kill him. It says, but passing through their midst, he went away. He went down to Capernaum, a city in Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. A couple things I want you to notice. One, the demon could say his name. Now, you might think that that's somewhat insignificant, but I'm going to tell you, 1 Timothy chapter 4 says that the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to the deceitful spirits, to the teachings of demons. Remember what I said about his servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness? There are people who are in the pulpits. There are people who are among you who are actually demons. Teaching things that they should not. Just because somebody says the name Jesus does not mean that they are spiritually on your side. That's one thing I want you to see. Two, they understand who Jesus is. The Holy One of God. They know that just as it was with Legion when it was um, Jesus was talking to that the man or the two men, depending on which translation you read, Excuse me. Who could not be restrained. They would break the chains whenever they would, people would try to bind them. They would cut themselves. And they're speaking to Jesus. And at first it was the man that Jesus was speaking to. And then he called out the demons. And it says that our name is Legion for we are many. It goes from a singular to a plural. And then from that point on it's plural. And Jesus is speaking to them as the demons. And it says, are you here to cast us out before the time? They know that their, their end is near. Their job right now is to try to get as many people on their side as they can. And how are they going to do that? Through deception and manipulation and sometimes intimidation. So they know who he is and they can declare who his name is. So don't be fooled just simply because somebody can say the name Jesus. That they're on your side. He says, but Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. 
And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Even the enemy testified to knowing who Christ is. He goes on, he says, And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. This would be Peter. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever and they appealed to him on her behalf. Now, something I want you to take notice is this would have been Peter. And he had a mother-in-law who would not have been his mother-in-law if, say, his wife had died. Because no longer would she be a mother-in-law. That covenant would have been done away with. So here's what we can find out. We know that Peter was married. We know that there's a good chance that Peter even had children. So when it says that Peter left everything and immediately followed Jesus, do you know what that included? His family. Following Jesus was everything. And just like Luke 14, 26-27 says, If anyone does not come to me and hate their father, mother, brother, sister, wife, children, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Anyone who does not pick up his cross cannot be my disciple. And 33, therefore, whoever does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Let me just tell you, if you think that following Jesus means that you're just supposed to be a minister to your own family, that you're just supposed to love them and you don't really have to tell people about Jesus, you don't really have to study the word so as to know the word and tell people about Jesus and the gospel and stand up for truth, then let me just tell you, you're mistaken. Because if your family is on equal terms or greater than Jesus and the mission that we have to live for him, then you are guilty of idolatry. That's why in 1 Corinthians seven twenty nine, Paul says this to the church in Corinth, the appointed time is going short from now on. Those who have wives live as though they had none. It's not that you don't serve your wife. It's not that you don't love your wife and your kids. It's that your mission is not your family. Your first ministry is not your family. Your first ministry is the glory of God. And whatever that entails, that might cost you your family. As I'll tell you, there are many people who have converted to Christianity and have lost their wife and their children as a result of it. And sometimes it's not even because their wife and their children were opposed to it. Sometimes their wife and their children also converted with them and they had to watch them die. That the hymn, I've decided to follow Jesus, you should look at the story behind that one of how that one... Um, how that kind of came to be and why that has such significance. But we know that he had a mother-in-law, that he was married, and that was part of the cost in following Jesus. It says, And they appealed to him on her behalf, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Now I want you to understand that Jesus was sent for the purpose of preaching the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of preaching to the glory of God. Of preaching the truth of the word of God. Of setting the wrongs right. Of of clarifying the things that were so that we would understand the things that are. This was his purpose. And listen to what he says in John 20, 21. 
For those of you who think that you can just kind of take it easy, that you can just enjoy your family in this life and you don't have that same purpose that Jesus had. You don't have that same calling that Jesus had, that same mission that Jesus had. You can just kind of take it easy. Just enjoy your family, work your nine to five, do your thing. You don't have to really talk to people about Jesus at all. John twenty twenty one, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Your purpose in this life, if you say that you belong to Jesus Christ, is to testify to the goodness and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to seek the mission to go expand the family of God. That's your mission. To go and make disciples. To teach people all that God has commanded us in His Word through Jesus Christ and this new covenant that He's given to us in the blood of Christ. It's not to just rest. It's not to just take it easy. It's not to just be a good dad, a good husband, a good man, a good employee. That's not what your life consists of. If you think that that's what it is, then you will live a miserable life. And on the day of heaven, you'll stand before Him. And you have hardly made any talents more, if any. And that's a dangerous spot. Go read Matthew 25. Your job is to invest into the kingdom of heaven and to go with the same purpose that Jesus had because it's still the same purpose that he gives to all who would say they follow him. You all be blessed.